Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, watch out before she tears out the pages of your teen Bible, it's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> Thank you, John. But Danielle, you would tear out the pages of a teen Bible. For the record, the New Testament, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, you would make a careful distinction. That yeah. You're taking about in half and only tear out the back half. Philip doesn't care. Philip does not care. I'm pretty sure he's like deep in like the Torah there. But anyway, um, <laughs> we are not alone on the other line. We just caught her on her way to an esp retreat, but she's here with us anyway. Um, it is Lily Gorin. <laughs> Hello, Lily. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> Lily, you are the first, maybe the only, well, still to be determined, uh, guest to cross from MCU stream timeline to American stream timeline. So, and we're very honored. So that it's you not the sacred so. timeline anymore. <laughs> no. You are quite the variant of the not quite great books. See, Danielle, I do know what's happening. <laughs> I was bit. just I was just about to say there's something that John would be tearing pages out of <laughs> the sacred timeline. I'm tearing pages out of the New Testament, John's tearing pages out of the sacred timeline. You know, it is what it is. But just to give people a little bit more of a sense of who you are, you are a professor at Carroll University, professor of political science. You're co-editor of the upcoming um, the Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Nick Carnes, who I believe will also be joining us on this podcast in a couple of, of weeks or so. You also are, I think, in my life, my resident pop culture and politics expert. True. You, ha- you have written a ton of stuff on pop culture and politics, um, including editing, Mad Men and Politics, Nostalgia, remake and Remaking of Modern America. And you've also written... Uh, the book, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, Women, Politics, and Pop Culture. It's just like, I feel like you are perfect for this podcast because of what you're you're writing about, what you're working on, and, you know, just like being who you are. Well, when so you all you. said that you had an Americans podcast, I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a chapter coming out about the Americans. Is this correct? This is correct. It is coming out. I don't know when the book is coming out, but I think sometime in the next couple of months. And my chapter is on the Americans and the 1980s and the and the Reagan administration's portrayal. All right. Very appropriate for this episode. American season two, episode nine, Marshall Eagle, an episode that Lily requested to be on for, cause she has great taste and judgment and analytical evaluation of the Americans. Yeah. Uh, This is an episode that is directed by Alex Sakharov and is written by Tracy Scott Wilson. And I was very shocked to learn earlier today, uh, the Oliver North. And we will be talking about the fact that he is involved in this at some point later in the episode. But Danielle, what is the IMDb summary for Marshall Eagle? The IMDb summary is Philip and Elizabeth's long planned mission turns ugly, impacting each of them in different ways. Stan digs deeper, digs in deeper at work as his personal life continues to unravel. Shorter than these are normally, but it hits on, I think, like major ideas. You know, there is an absence uh, of, of say the church, but never mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like the page stuff is always like tertiary to this show, at least in terms of plot summary. 
And also, I mean, this is a show, and I'm going to throw the question to you here in a second, Lily, that the church storyline in this episode is way more about Philip than it is about Paige. Usually it's about Paige and her relationship to her parents, her relationship to the U.S., her resistance against her parents, so on and so forth. But here it's about Philip, I think. And Philip is often at the center of camera shots when he's in talking with a lot of other people throughout this episode as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. But Lily, you pointed out before we started recording this episode that deception is something that is organizing the many, many character and plot and narrative and emotional and psychic uh, work that this episode is doing. Do you want to kind of give a general gloss of that? Yeah, we start off um, and we have a situation where Philip and Elizabeth are obviously in their, some of their regular disguises, trying to sneak into um, uh, a clandestine base in the United States where freedom fighters from Central America are being trained um, secretly (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. by U.S. military. So there's a deception in terms of where they're going and then that there is their, their own deception. There is some interesting deception that, that, Philip as Clark um, sort of pulls on Martha um, to try to get her to sort of do some of the deceptive stuff that he needs her to do. Um, There is an interesting discussion of deception and not seeing things between Stan and his wife. Um, <clears throat> there yeah. is sort of unknowing deception or sort of obfuscation by Paige with regard to her relationship to the church in her donation of money mm-hmm. that she had yeah. saved. Um, and that when Philip and Elizabeth learned about this kind of deception, um, there's a lot of response to that. And then the final sequence, the final scene is an interesting engagement around deception and seeing i think first of all thank you for that and i think like thinking through each of these different pieces in an episode where like a lot happens but through the lens of deception is productive in thinking about how some of the pieces that feel a little bit more disparate or distance from each other like how they are intimately connected in the way in which the different characters are are engaging with one another and i and i left out the bit about the stealth scientists who were also who are perfecting a kind of deception um the stealth mechanics oh, yeah. um of of submarines and and airplanes um and their own sort of need the way that they're set up as being siloed from each other and so that the program itself is set up in a deceptive mode and Stan is trying to put all the pieces together. So he mm-hmm. gets to have a situation where he is not, in fact, being deceived, um, which is also, you know, sort of in contrast to a lot of the other plot points that are going on in this episode. Well, the only deception that Stan experiences is the very classic first half of the American self-deception that Stan is constantly experiencing <laughs> um, in this show. And uh, Lily, I appreciated that you brought up that scene with the DOD scientists because not only is there that deception angle, there's the kind of way that the Americans tends to take its thematic work and make it explicit in the plot. And they talk about compartmentalization, right? That Baklanov couldn't have known enough to give the Soviet Union with all right. stealth technology, because as you said, Lily, the different parts of the project are siloed off from one another, so much so that it's only this one meeting in Alexandria where all of the relevant scientists and DOD personnel and 
pure kind of military industrial complex, like the defense contractors bidding to make the planes have all gathered together. And then like the deception that's happening, both self-deception and deceptions of others seems to me to be a, occurring at points where the compartmentalization that the characters have set up in their kind of internal psychic lives or in relationship to other characters are breaking down in this episode. And no one more so than Philip, right? Like yeah. the fictions that Philip needs to maintain either about himself or the work that he does for the Soviet Union, like the kind of brutal, intimate murders that he commits on the base to protect he and Elizabeth, like breaks through the various compartmentalizations and silos he's set up around how this affects him, how this affects his family, how this affects the way he relates to other humans. Well, and I think also just to add to that, that like unraveling or breaking down, like I think we see, we see that made explicit in the exchange between Philip and Elizabeth following um, everything that happens at, at the base where Philip says to Elizabeth, like, this is easier for you. Right. Like there's a sense that like Philip knows that he has to keep those things separate in order to keep functioning. And we see all these different snapshots in the episode, both in in this exchange with Elizabeth, but also I would say like in the way that he deals with Henry wanting to show him a card trick and then in the sort of like zoning out on the pier, like all of this, like we are seeing this sort of like emotional turmoil that I think Philip is usually quite good at separating. We see it coming to the fore. And I would even say that like, we started to see a little bit of that breaking down happen in the previous episode when he doesn't play the recording, the doctored recording for Martha. He sort of like feels bad for her and like allows those feelings to, at least this was my reading of it, like allows those feelings to like stop him from following through on that part, which we then see come to fruition here. So I think that unraveling the inability to compartmentalize the inability to maybe uh, continue to deceive himself is just like, it's, it is crushing Philip, I think. Oh yeah. There's definitely a sense of despair. I mean, even when he's sitting there at the boardwalk, it's like, that's a mode of phenomenologically being in the world that we have maybe never witnessed from Philip before, where he is a hundred percent checked out. It's probably not um, a coincidence that he has to be in one of his disguises in order to allow himself to do that. And it's just like, and, or the way he goes to threaten pastor Tim at the end, but does he actually want to threaten pastor Tim? Does he want to have unknowingly unconsciously this like heart to heart about forgiveness and grace and all of these things? It's just <laughs> like the, the inability of Philip to kind of maintain the performance or fiction that he's created for himself is just coming through so starkly and those and many other moments in this episode. Yeah. And, and it becomes a, a you know, it, it is a sort of ongoing train with regard to him. Um, and so I don't want to give too much away, but it's not the first time that Philip starts to fray at the edges with regard to this job. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've only watched until this episode, but I get the sense that like the unraveling that's happening in this episode is something that feels like it's been building for a long time. If not from the very beginning of the series, at least halfway through, like I would, I would place it around the, the torture um, that Philip and Elizabeth undergo in season one didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. And it's almost like I was waiting for Philip to start to like unravel fully. Yeah. And I mean, this is an interesting point, Danielle, because he, 
he unravels after the torture immediately. He leaves Elizabeth, right? He goes and lives in the like motel for a while, gets another uh, apartment, all these kinds of things. They appear to reconcile and appear to be trying. They start having sex again. Mm-hmm. Um, like so there's the moments where it seems to be putting back together. And then now it's like the actual healing of the wounds, you know, has never, has never in fact occurred in this episode reveals that. Well, it's also, I mean, I would say given, given what we learned just even in the pilot where, you know, Philip is kind of enjoying commercial life. Um, and, and, and he says he has these short discussions with Elizabeth about how nice it is living in the United States and what they have. Um, and, you know, again, it's this kind of austerity of Elizabeth's sort of approach versus Philip, who is being caught by, um, consumerism and capitalism in ways that I don't think he anticipated also. So two things. One is I think when Philip says to Elizabeth in this episode, this is easier for you. I think that is part of what's happening. There's something about America. There are things about America and capitalism that Philip enjoys and we've watched him enjoy these things. And so like the, the betrayal hits different for him. It, it is a form of betrayal, even if he doesn't want it to be. Yeah. The, the other thing is like, we actually get a piece of, of their, a tiny piece of their history from Elizabeth and she offers it to Paige. Like, you know, we grew up with nothing. We, we, we suffered. And I was shocked by that because, you know, they're not, they're not really in the business, at least on camera of like giving Paige a ton of their own backstory, but that backstory felt, felt real and felt like it perhaps wasn't deception um, in a way that was striking to me. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that because it is one of these things that, that comes up in, in a strange way because Elizabeth has just woken up Paige to clean the refrigerator and fold the laundry in the middle of the night, um, which is her response to Paige's giving away of the money to the church as opposed to throwing a Bible, which is what Philip does. <laughs> <laughs> So I was doing a little uh, research before the episode. Apparently, Matthew Reese and Holly Taylor, like, did not rehearse together for that scene so as to, like, elicit a more genuine reaction from Holly Taylor as Paige. And, like, so the crying, it was, like, the first take that they did, apparently, like, her reaction to it. And then Matthew Reese apparently then later said that he regrets not telling Holly Taylor, like, how angry he was going to get or the way he was going to kind of act on set uh, and, like, felt bad about that interaction that they had together. I mean, I was struck by, by Holly Taylor's reaction. I think it's the reaction I would have had not around the Bible. I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> but if somebody but, had taken your copy of the Republic and started pulling the pages out of it. <laughs> to read if I ever heard one, and that is absolutely correct. I was just in a friend's office, and he had four different copies of the Republic, and I was, like, jealous about it. So <laughs> I think that that is right. <laughs> I've got two back here, uh, it appears. See? <laughs> Danielle, like if if our if we finally fray, if we as a friendship and podcast fray because over the MCU, that's how we're going to like express our rage towards one another. Is we're going to no. take each other's like cherished books and tear them apart. 
I think if we've made it this far, nine episodes into the MCU, we're going to be I think fine. you're going to be fine. I think you're going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We have, we have these episodes to bring us back together. Exactly right. <laughs> so speaking of the Bible, actually. Um, <laughs> a great segue. You, you are a pro. Thank you. Um, so we get a bit of Pastor Tim's sermon at the church on no, it's not teenage Sunday is Elizabeth <laughs> hilariously calls it. That's like the one really, truly funny line in this episode. She refuses. I'm assume, going to assume intentionally to call it by the name. It's actually youth day at the church, but she calls it teenage Sunday, which I love, especially like given the Sovietness of it all. And like there, are, I'm sure there's a youth day in the Soviet union, right? Like they're always is the day that like, yeah, like Elizabeth was like, I don't know if, uh, girls could be in the pioneer ski and like the young pioneers group, but whatever we're on a tangent. So we get this, we get this, uh, sermon from pastor Tim and we actually get a snippet of uh, new Testament, Danielle's less preferred Testament. <laughs> so this upsets Danielle, but I'm going to read the verse that gets name checked by pastor Tim, uh, in this episode. So this is John 10, 10. And on this podcast, we kick it old school with the King James version. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10, 10 from King James. So like there's a way in which the, that's a further accusation by, you know, Pastor Tim doesn't know that he's accusing Philip or accusing Elizabeth in that moment. Yeah. But the show knows that it's further indicting the way that, Philip and Elizabeth are deceiving their daughter, or deceiving their family, or kind of creating this elaborate structure to kind of justify their own existence as Soviet spies. Um, and then the question becomes, I think, whether Paige clearly thinks that the church is that which might give her life, which might give her abundant life, which might give her happiness. And Pastor Tim is like framing happiness as a choice in an extremely like 80s Protestantism move. Yeah. Um, to, Buddy to Christ and all. Uh, it was like, Jesus is supposed to suffer on the cross. What's happening here? <laughs> and so I guess kind of do either of you see more happening with that Bible verse that we get in relation to the episode as a whole? Well, I do. I mean, just in that particular sequence, we have the focus on Philip once again. And John, yes. you've, you've already mm -hmm. mentioned that he, he has a central, he's, he's centrally focused on throughout the, the episode, but there, there is this kind of, um, sort of stiffness that Paige notices that she sees, yeah. um, as pastor Tim is giving his sermon. Um, and so it, it, it feels at least, you know, Elizabeth's kind of listening to it, whatever. And it's, it seems that Philip is kind of taking it in, in some regard and mulling it around and seeing if it really fits or works for him, which again is interesting given the ending sequence. I think that that's right. And I think like the page is so aware in that scene of, of like where both of her parents are, but like, like really picks up on, Phillips, I like the way that you called it stiffness or like even discomfort, right? And we just came off that, I would say, atypical interaction with Henry in the kitchen. And Elizabeth has realized that something's up. So Paige clearly realizes something's up. And then in the church, when this is happening, is hyper aware 
of, of his responses. And I think like reading that scene as him hearing it or, or like, in, and, and mulling it over, I think makes a lot of sense, especially if we link it to him coming back to confront Pastor Tim later on. That like that, I think we can read that as a reaction in part to what he is perhaps internalizing as something of an accusation put forward like against him. Um, not that Pastor Tim knows what's up, but like John, as you pointed out, like the show knows, right? The show knows like what these dynamics are. So I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I think both of you kind of pointed to Philip's stiffness in that scene and particularly the way that Paige picks up on it. The show then contrasts that with like the genuine warmth and affection that she has for Pastor Tim and his wife, right? Like immediately she gives a big hug and gets a big hug from both of them in a way that's more affectionate than like we ever really see her and her parents. Yeah. And so the stiffness of... Philip in that scene, taking it in and whatever he's doing, Elizabeth's general, like, I'm out on this opium of the masses bullshit. And like, then immediately <laughs> contrasted with that kind of emotional life or emotional warmth that Paige gets followed by, as both of you pointed out, the like extreme coldness of Philip in that final scene. And I just like, I love the way that final scene is shot. I love the way it's yeah. lit. I, the way they light the church, the way they light Philip as he walks his, like, walks his way towards Jesus, uh, then to the side of Jesus to go confront Pastor Tim. Um, the windows that they have Philip, like, the windows through, which they, of course they love doing in the show in all sorts of ways. Um, and the drapes. And, and the drapes. Yeah. The, I love the drapes on the office. Um, and then Matthew Reese's line readings in that scene are so, so good, right? I'm not here to be saved by you or your God. The way he says that, which I'm not going to attempt to recreate, is just so cutting because it's both the confrontation that he's imagining himself having with uh, Pastor Tim, but mm-hmm. then also it's that self-accusation or that understanding of, well, maybe I actually am looking for some of that forgiveness for the sins I have committed. Let's yeah. just keep going uh, along those lines. And just, I think Matthew Reese does a really wonderful job conveying that in how he is reading those lines in that scene. Searching for salvation like not searching, not allowing oneself to search for salvation seems to be like another way to read the sort of inner turmoil that we're seeing in Philip's stiffness. The other thing that I thought was striking is that is something John, that you said earlier about that Philip has to be in, in like one of his disguises to allow himself to zone out. But this, this is I was sort of watching this episode and I was like, the confrontation of Pastor Tim is actually the perfect place for a dirtbag Philip to, to roll in. Like one of his like more seedier disguises to like do the roughing up. That's usually who we see do the roughing up. So I think that it is, it's like, it's important, right? That it's not, it's Philip without any disguise. And there's something about the like bared down version of him that meets the moment like so well, which I think is also reflected in the line reading and just like the powerfulness of the scene. Yeah. I mean, I I think it it is really fascinating because of the way that it is also lit that you see him 
in darkness and then you see him in in being lit so you see his face and everything else is dark yeah. like his, all of his clothing and he's got gloves on his hands which i gloves, the gloves uh, exactly the gloves. i will never forget that that part when from the first time i saw this particular scene and you're like what is he doing um and 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 the the, also the kind of beigeness of the background of Pastor Tim's office mm-hmm. um, that it just it it makes Matthew Reese sort of stand out um, in a way as well as his as his facial expressions when he's doing the line reading because mm-hmm. it's it's an iciness there's mm-hmm. a, yeah it's icy and dis- and desperate at the same time. Um, and, and I thought, you know, and pastor Tim doesn't know what's going on. Like, that's the other thing. He's like, I'm going to give you grace or, you know, I'm sorry, you're angry. Um, but (laughs) a phenomenal pastor. Tim, (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And obviously he doesn't know what's going on because it's not clear to Philip what's going on. Um, yeah. And so Pastor Tim's trying like a, a bunch of different, like, he, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I'm going to try this one on. Let's see if that works. Um, and it's just, it, he doesn't know what to do. And he's not really afraid, but he's like, hmm, you're a little threatening. <laughs> uh, that's such a good point because he opens with, what is it that you want? Which is both like, he doesn't understand what's happening. And again, the show highlighting as it likes to do the fact that Philip really doesn't know what he wants being there. He doesn't know what he wants with regards to capitalism or the U S versus the USSR and like all these places. So like, that's really great. And then, um, Philip is like, you're going to not let Paige come. And Pastor Tim's like, literally the purpose of this is that it's a sanctuary yeah. and that I don't turn people away. That's kind right. of the whole thing. And, like, uh, and so you Pastor, seem to have misinterpreted what this is. Yeah. So it's like, so it's like while Pastor Tim's office, I think you're right, Lily, is this kind of like beige, almost negative space visually mm-hmm. in that scene. Like the writers do a good enough job to not let Pastor Tim as a character be a kind of negative space character. Like he still is an active member of kind of what the, the, the thematic and emotional work that is happening. And thus, I don't think it's a total coincidence that the wig that Philip is wearing for the mission at the base bears some resemblance to Pastor Tim's wild hair. Huh? Well, I also think that when he's, when he's working with Fred, the Soviet recruit um double angel yeah. his hair is in a ponytail but it's also mm-hmm. flying all over the place in the wind and it is yeah. very again the same color tone as pastor tim's um sort of longish hair yeah it's also like the jesus painting in the church mm-hmm. <laughs> well and maybe this is a good time to dig into the philip fred uh exchange as perhaps a way to wrap up our our philip centric conversation yeah one the hair but i think like the thing that was so striking about there was so much about that that exchange that was powerful to me but i think the thing that i kept coming back to is the way that fred is like you didn't recruit me like you didn't see something in me emmett did and then and then philip like reveals like gives this reveal that i think is a little bit out of character for philip so I was, I was struck by, I was struck by Philip's willingness in that moment to be like, 
a bunch of Russian soldiers died. Like the plans that we got, you know, were planted. Like the U.S. is manipulating you, right? Or the U.S. is manipulating us and we fell for it. And you were part of that as a way to sort of like ensure that Fred was going to, you know, go in there in the right way. But I think also as a way to a sort of like an opening to Fred to be like, listen, I didn't recruit you, but I trust you. So I trust you and you have to trust me. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the, the issue of trust between Philip and Fred is complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and Fred is really skeptical because it's not the person who recruited him. And he, you know, he's just like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm fine. And Philip, is skeptical that he does. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he's trying really hard to sort of train him into not giving away the ghost at the interview that he's going to have with the FBI. I read that scene as Philip is seeking like some sort of emotional craving from Fred. Like maybe I could have the connection with Fred that Emmett did. Yeah. It's when he doesn't get that, that he turns to, a similar move that he makes vis-a-vis Martha, which is let me turn up the emotional manipulation in order to achieve the goal that I want. And then to your point, Lily, Fred knows what he's doing and knows why he's doing it and knows what he wants. And the certainty that Fred projects in the face of Phillips, like slight floundering in that scene and then extreme floundering in this episode as a whole is such a heightened contrast, I think. I also think that, Fred is obviously somebody who's going to be a giant red flag once the FBI gets a hold of him. And, and that's how we also see Stan interviewing him. Oh, you have no friends. You've never been married. You're a loner. (laughs) And Fred, like Fred, what I liked about that is Fred turns it on him. Like, Oh, you're going to see that as a red flag, which is like, we have this, this constant debate between the two. It's not really a debate, but like, we're always asking the question of the show. Like, is Stan good at his job or is Stan bad at his job? And in fact, the ways in which he is good at his job only serve to highlight the ways in which he is bad at his job. Yes. Like in the scene with Fred, he says, you know, well, no one actually thinks they're ever going to betray their country until they actually do. And, you know, <laughs> people, the Soviets are masters at exploiting weaknesses. They always find them. Everyone has them. And it's like, really, Stan, tell me more. Do, do, does everybody have weaknesses? <laughs> You Soviet agents know how to exploit them. What do you think? And so just the, you know, in the Fred Stan scene, like not only are we getting all this information about Fred and kind of Fred, you know, adding some sort of meta commentary on the fact that Stan should be suspicious of him to Stan himself. Stan, what he is saying is giving his meta commentary on his own self-deceptions. The thing that I was going to say about like, Fred shedding light on the like, is Stan good at his job question that we keep asking is in Fred being like, Oh, I know what you're going to ask me. Like, I know, I know this, I know that it like, it really brings to light the fact that like Stan's movements and his job are so predictable, which is the thing that makes Stan bad at his job. Right. Like, and that is the thing I believe what we're supposed to read that is like, that's the thing that Emmett trained Fred to understand, like to be able to call out the red flags, like um, muddies the waters or like muddles one's view 
of whether or not these are actually red flags, right? So, like, he sort of, like, succeeds in, at least in the moment, throwing Stan off the scent a little bit by playing into the, like, is Stan good at his job? Probably not. So, like, let's just, let's let's uh, shine a light on it. And, and of course, with Fred, you do have the somebody who's a scientist, right? You mm-hmm. have a scientist and you have a double agent and and you have somebody who thinks they know all the answers or knows everything. Um, and that's to some degree how he's being portrayed because he also doesn't want to be handled by Philip because he doesn't care for Philip and he knows yeah. better than Philip. Um, and so you do have that sort of arrogance that is presented in in Fred because again he is sort of somebody who's smart he's educated and he's a scientist and um and he also just has no he has no truck for Stan or for Philip he's like yeah you guys are lame well and he's like gotten this far right like he's there i kept thinking about the fact that this is someone who was able to outsmart Philip at least initially and like tie him up and Philip's not supposed to be able or that's not supposed to be able to happen right like so I think you're successfully like did the brush pass in this initial episode of this season at a time when we learn even more in this episode how heightened security was around these scientists these people working at the defense contractors around that event yeah Absolutely. So he, not, not only is Fred uh, shedding some light on Stan's existence and skills or lack thereof at his job, but so too is Sandy. <laughs> and oh yeah, Sandy, there is just like, she only gets one scene in this episode. It's a relatively short scene. And yet in it, you know, and this is an interesting thing the show is doing with Eston. Obviously it's going to do a lot more with Eston with kind of self-help culture in the eighties as we move in particularly into seasons three and four, but Sandy's emotional work, whatever that has meant for her that she's done on herself, like allows her to cut through so much of Stan's bullshit. Yeah. And it's like, Mr. Counterintelligence guy, how could you not know that I was having this? We would probably call it an emotional affair with this other man. That's now presumably going to be a sexual affair. And like, just is so direct and so direct on Stan, tell me you're not having an affair. And Stan like gets half of one word out and then just shuts down. To go back to the point about deception, right? Like he's incapable of following through with the deception, which again goes back to the point of like, Stan, you're bad at your job. Like, or at least vis-a-vis Stan- Sandy, you're bad at your job. How did he live through, you know, being undercover with the white supremacists? I mean, that's the part that's always perplexing because that's how he's also set up as supposedly being incredibly competent. Right. Is he was deep undercover and with really bad people. At least the way that I'm thinking about that. And like, I, I think you're right that like, he did this really hard thing for so long. I think it's so different and it's such a different skill set to fully immerse yourself in a a lifestyle, even if that lifestyle is completely separate and opposite from the one that you live in your like regular life, it's one thing to completely immerse yourself. It's another thing to have to consistently like hide part of who you are in these intimate moments, right? Like, and ostensibly, like Sandy is supposed to be the person who knows him best, and and she's in this series like really good at picking up on when something is wrong, like. 
to the point in this episode where she's like, tell me that you're not having an affair too. And he can't tell her. But so I think like the skill set to be embedded in a community is different. And I think Stan might've been really good at that, but he's terrible at like actually being an FBI agent. I love this question, Lily, and that's a great response, Danielle, because it crystallizes, I think, several threads of what we've talked about on the show about Stan, particularly the way that Stan and Naxon performs and is shaped by a particular kind of masculinity, because it's a masculinity that does not allow him to engage in the self-reflection that is necessary to exists in a way that's not, I'm just white supremacist undercover guy, you know, 355 days a year or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to use a common refrain, like Stan needs to go to therapy. And then, uh, the most. secondly, that Stan does not have the ability to like fully think through what it means to have an emotional relationship with another woman, right? Like he is fucked up by his through with about his job vis-a-vis his relationship with Nina. And then that affects his relationship with Sandy, right? So it's like in both of those ways, the fact that he could have just been macho guy in the white supremacist gang probably saved him from these flaws that are is fucking up his life. Not to mention the fact that like, I think the show does a decent job of every couple of episodes, including in this one, even like he was successful at his, I'm going to bully the department of justice into giving me access. There are so many moments where Stan is really effective at what he's doing as shady or sketchy as it often is in like FBI surveillance culture. Um, But like those things are, I think, really brought together by this question that you asked us, Lily. And and in the end of that scene, he's crying, which again mm-hmm. is, you know, here is the FBI dude um, in the Reagan administration who is completely at a loss for the fact that his wife is essentially running off with another man, yeah. that he missed all of that, and he seems to be sad about it. Both that he's sad about it, and I wonder if, too, he is like confronted by the the fact that like Sandy reads him and reads him so clearly. And I'm sure he thought that he was like being stealth about his affair with me. Right. Like I think there's like a, Oh no, am I bad at my job? <laughs> like, or like I thought I was, I thought I was like, just like doing fine. Oh no. Like I'm not doing fine. The Sandy's, um, Mr. Counterintelligence Genius line is perhaps my favorite line of this entire show so far. <laughs> um, because it's just such a, it's like, it cuts to the core of him. Like his entire existence really is wrapped up in his thought that he's good at his job. I think it's part of why Gad you know, potentially losing his job is like, is shaking Stan so, so badly because like his entire like personality is wrapped up in his belief that he's good at his job, which just gets back to the point about like the inability to engage in any sort of self-reflection and also like shines a light on simply how tough for him, Sandy's like deep dive into self-help culture must be like, it's so counterintuitive and like counter to the way that he exists. Like there's something about it. And this moment, his crying is like, Oh, actually perhaps like the thing she's engaging in is like 
is doing her some good and is going to cause me to unravel. Well, and, and, you know, he comes in to talk to Gad and wondering why Gad's packing up his office because Gad's packing up his office because he thinks he's going to get fired because of the mistake that Stan made. Stan made. (laughs) And Gad is, other than Sandy, the only character who will confront Stan with the ways in which he is fucked up, right? And so that's interesting that he plays that role, even in the previous episode, right? Where he, maybe it was two episodes ago, where Stan goes to Gad's apartment, right? Um, and they sit down and, like, have a therapy session um, on, the, you know, just the positions reversed, who's in the couch, who's in the chair. Yeah. yeah. Can I go? Can I go for? There's several segues here. To speak of crying in couches, let's talk about Martha and Clark. Oh, <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah, you're it, a, you're I felt a sad. It felt sad. I, I mean, it it is sad because the Martha Clark stuff is sad. It's always sad. Yeah. It, it. You're right. It's always sad. But there's something about this episode and the last episode that just like makes it I think like we are we are on the precipice of like deeply depressing with them. My working theory is that Martha is not long for this world. Don't don't reveal anything, but I think like the more Martha and Clark we get, the more I'm like, Martha's gonna die. We just well, say no comment no to this comment. Way. We we have, I have a guess so I can exchange like Zencaster's window uh <laughs> eye contact and then we say no comment okay. I think how this works. <laughs> But I, I mean, yeah. I, I've always found Martha's character to be um, sort of a pathetic presentation. I mean, I, th- I think yeah. the actress is amazing because yeah. she she does present this person who's kind of a, you know, a, a young woman on, on the make, on the move in Washington, D.C. She came from Ohio and all of this stuff. And, um, and you know, she, she dresses of the time. She's... Mm-hmm. She's of, the, of time. the time. I mean, it's not over the top, but it is, it is somewhat chic. Um, and, and, you know, and she's invested in Clark, you know, she loves Clark, but he never spends the night. <laughs> and when he, even in this episode, when he's like, I, I'm going home, right? Like at the end of that exchange, which is so depressing, he's like, I'm going home. And you, Martha's like, you see her once again, go to the like, which she always, the ubiquitous refrain for her, which is like, this is your home, even though you're not allowed to sleep here. Ugh. And, and he's manipulated her, as, as we've all noted, this terrible, this, this crushing kind of um, manipulation of her sense of herself and what she, you know, how she presents and the people around her, what they think of her. And then he leaves her. Yeah. And leaves, oh, it's the manipulation just is functioning on so many different levels. It already has been since the beginning of this, which pre-exists the show, the Americans, right? Like the recruiting of Martha goes further back, of course. And it's the manipulation with the sound recording. It's the manipulation to then get Martha to volunteer, to do more spying and have her seem like it was her idea rather than something mm-hmm. that Philip slash Clark is inducing in her. And then the manipulation of like, I don't have an erection. I'm don't, I'm too drunk and I'm too upset and I'm going to leave suddenly yeah. at the end. Right. So like just stacking these multiple different forms of manipulation to further, 
put Martha down the path towards whatever Philip slash Clark is taking her to. There is the way in which those different layers are connected to Martha. And then there's also the way in which all those different layers are examples of Philip's further unraveling. Right. I see the exchange between Clark and Martha as like a further unraveling of that compartmentalization of the sort of like focus on the mission, like all of that stuff, like just a further unraveling of Philip to go back to our our conversation from earlier. Two points there, Danielle. And one is, I think you're right in, this goes back to something we've now discussed a couple of times, that Philip is at the center of nearly every single frame in the scene with Martha, even when a lot of the emotional work is being done by Martha, done by Allison Wright, nonetheless, Philip Matthew Reese is at the center of the frame. So that's happening in that direction. And then we get this like initial way that Clark slash Philip is manipulating her when he's sad, he's drunk. Like Martha's like, Oh, you don't drink very much. Clark. He talks about how he's upset. He likes tiny blows up at Martha and then goes back into like sad boy mode And then gets Martha to say, like, I'm not afraid of the different sides of you. And it's like, oh, no, Martha, you have no idea how, like, deeply those different sides run. Yeah. Well, and, and there's always this way that, like, even though Martha is just, like, fully in the dark about so much... There is like a version of Philip as Clark that that Martha gets that no one else gets. That is that that statement about like, I can take all the different sides of you. I feel like is a moment where like read against the fact that there is there's some like element of authenticity in in like Philip as Clark. That that is being there's like a uh, a crack that is coming through more and more in each episode that like makes just makes the uh, statements like that just like hit a little bit harder and be a little bit more depressing. Yeah, Philip as Clark, there's there is a an emotional affection that he has towards Martha that you see more and more and more. Um, and, and that's why I think his getting up and leaving at the end of their conversation is so harsh Mm -hmm. because he actually cares a bit about her and what, and what he does when he leaves her so vulnerable because he's presented her with this, this sort of situation where she is made to feel ugly and unattractive and and sort of un and unfeminine or unwomenly or whatever, and then you know they start to mess around, and then he's just just like, nope, gotta go, see ya. Well, and it it goes back to something that I believe Stan says um, earlier on, where Stan is is I. Bl- I can't remember if he's talking to Fred at this point, but it's during his interrogations, and Stan is like you know, they cause you to feel shame and fear that induces your silence and that allows them to control you. Mm -hmm. And then in the exchange between Philip and Martha, we literally see that happening, right? We see him play the tape. We, we like, which brings about the kind of silence that, that Philip needs um, or the kind of complicity that Philip needs, which like allows him to control her, even though he's struggling with it. It's like, Again, it's just like it's it's heartbreaking 
to watch that play out with Martha, who just like is so naive. How can you be married to someone who doesn't stay at your house? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like Stan. That's like Mr. Stan Foucault over there, not Mr. Counterintelligence Genius. (laughs) But that line is like Stan's, like, oh, I, you know, somehow absorbed some Foucault, um, even though most of his stuff hasn't been published in English yet. Should we head to the segments? Let's head to the segments. All right, Danielle, what's in the dossier this week? I'm just, like, super suspicious of Pastor Tim and his wife. Listen, you want to say that you didn't know, that the parents didn't know about the $600? It is the 80s, my friend. $600 is a lot. What teenager is walking around with $600? Like, I don't know. There's just something super suspicious about Pastor Tim and his wife. So it's not suspicious in the same way that I'm usually suspicious of someone either being a spy or being like really against the spies, but suspicious nonetheless. I always found them suspicious. I mean, I think that they, the way that they are written, how they come on the scene, um, you know, sort of when they turn up at the travel agency, um, in a couple episodes to plan the trip to Kenya, whatever you're always like, what's, what's the other side here? What's the other side here? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good observation. Danielle, good observation, Lily. It's like, mm, pastor Tim is running his own recruitment mission, just a, you know, s- structurally similar, even if the content is quite different. Um, and yeah, that is, that is, that is very sus. Uh, yeah. Danielle, I have a question for you for the dossier. Go for it. Would you like to do any, um, conspiracy theorizing or predicting about the fact that now Stan has been inserted or reinserted into the investigation into the Leanne Emmett murder? I did start to feel a little stressed out that like the Leanne Emmett murder was coming back and there was something about him looking at the photo and seeing that there was a son and it was like unclear to me whether or not like the son was sort of in the mix beforehand. Uh, I was like, I don't know, like that son could probably identify Elizabeth, but I was placated in my, in my, um, fears by the fact that ultimately Stan is bad at his job. (laughs) I don't, I think that like, we're going to get close. Listen, this series goes on for six, like six seasons and Stan is the neighbor as far as I know. So like, I think (laughs) he probably gets pretty close to figuring it out, but he's generally too bad at his job and blinded by like bullshit. And I'm sure there's going to be like a Nina striptease in here somewhere to like make Stan forget that he like has a job to do. That's my, that, those are my predictions. (laughs) I only have like a thousand no comments to all of that. That's all I can offer in response. If I'm right about any of that, (laughs) really, Danielle, we missed an opportunity to like keep track of all of the predictions. We should have done that. Among our copious numbers of listeners, if anyone wants to do that, they get like (laughs) a shout out on every single episode as far as absolutely. All right. Should we go to gloss? Yeah, let's go to Gloss. There's a lot happening in Gloss. Sure is. Uh, Lily, you pointed out, as we were discussing the episode, the tone evoked by some of the music in this episode. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we start the episode and it's really dark, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so the visualization is that they're, they're sort of sneaking onto this space in, a, in what, a sewage truck? Truck? 
that smells really bad and everything's dark and, um, and Elizabeth wants to kill the guy whose truck it is. And, you know, Philip has sort of said, no, let's just leave him alone. He doesn't, he doesn't know us. And it's all very dark. And then, and then there's killings that happen that are very dark. And there's a bit of classical music that sort of heightens the, the sense of, of, you know, sort of some, I don't want to say doom, but, you know, sort of darkness and, and sort of evoking a certain kind of feeling, particularly given that Philip has become more hesitant about all of the murders that he keeps having to commit. And he has to commit a murder that wasn't in the cards and, it makes him upset again. And this is also why we see him on edge through a lot of this episode. And then in the final sequence, that, that amazing scene with pastor Tim, the music, the classical music that once again plays, it's sort of heightening your sense of um, fear um, and anxiety in terms of the, the tone, the tone of the music itself, it's violin strings. And you get, again, it's it's the darkness of him entering. And John, as you said, this sort of the beautiful way in which that whole episode part is shot. Um, You know, I, I've seen this episode many, many times and that final sequence with, with um, Matthew Reese coming into the church and that whole conversation and then his departure from the church. I remember the look back that he gives at the church. Yeah. Is just like yeah. Heartbreaking in a certain way. And I still remember it from the first time I saw it. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's one of the best scenes of the entire series in terms yeah. of how they shot it and how they make you feel in it. Cause you don't know what's going to happen and the gloves and the darkness and the light. Um, and I, so I think that sort of this classical music that also frames the beginning and the end of this, the episode, uh, is really interesting and does sort of heighten what you're, thinking might happen, whether it does or doesn't happen, you you know, he doesn't actually strangle Pastor Tim with the gloves on, which is kind of what I thought was going to happen. But you're, you're kind of like, is that, oh my gosh. Um, And, and so I think that's also the modulation of his voice in so much of it um, contributes to that as well as having this sort of string music in the background that's kind of contributing to your emotional response to the whole scene. Absolutely. I I love this analysis because something that I'm that I'm learning while watching this show, especially with John, but with with guests as well, who are like more much more attentive to the music than I am. Like this show does such a good job of using or like evoking evoking reactions from multiple senses, not just from the camera shots or not just from like the way you're understanding the plot point, but also like using music to heighten the suspense of it or just like heighten my own suspicions around people. I think that's absolutely right. And I think the sort of like the classical music in the beginning and the end is a, is a nice place to, to put to shine a bit of a, of a light to remind us how much work all of our senses are doing in watching the episode and in like allowing us to engage in this way. That was a beautiful, like 
things Danielle is currently writing about making their way into the podcast, and I love it so much. <laughs> oh my god, Danielle is currently writing about sound and noise and music. <laughs> but this is also why I can't knit while watching the Americans because I have to pay attention. Oh, interesting. Like, because, like, you can't. I knit during lots of television. Um, okay. And, and so it's, it's, you know, something that I find relaxing. And I've done mm-hmm. more knitting during the pandemic. Um, and there's a lot of television shows that I can knit. It, I, I can't really knit when there are subtitles because that's a problem. Um, but sure. I would never knit while watching the Americans because you have to pay attention to what is going on in the screen. And I can't look up and down um, at my knitting and also pay attention enough. It's a show that I love, but it's, you know, it's not something like, oh, I'll just flip on a couple episodes of the Americans and knit for an hour. Can't do that. The Americans doesn't feel like something that you can really wa- like put on in the background and fall asleep to. It's like this is a show I need to concentrate on, and I need to concentrate not only with my brain but all but all of my senses. And I think that it's right to highlight the scene on the base is one of the places where that's happening. A, because Lily, as you point out, the darkness of it. Like, I rarely watch these for the podcast in the afternoon, but I did this time. Like, I couldn't see, like, what was happening. And thankfully, I've seen it a couple of times, so I kind of knew. But the sound then becomes so important, and it forces forced me to pay more attention to the way that they're using the flares in that, you know, and the bass to not only, um, you know, evoke the like mini war theater performance that's happening, but also literally light what's happening on the screen and light the action and light what's going on. It gives one more ability to focus on the sound design on the bass of not only the score that's playing at times throughout that scene, but the gunfire, the like mortar shells, where that's coming from, right? Like I watched this on my laptop with headphones on and you could really hear what they were doing with like some good sound mixing in this episode on the bass. And on top of that, there's, did either of you pick up on the name or the code that Philip had to give the security guard to get onto the bass? No, I didn't. It's Shining City, which is like the most Reagan-ass name, code word to get onto the base I've ever heard of. I did. When I was watching it today before the show, I did hear it. I was just like, ah, that's interesting. The driver of the septic tank, Lewis, is left to freeze to death in the forest and further sending Philip into his spiral because he was the one who was insistent on, we're not going to kill this guy. We're just going to leave him tied here against Elizabeth's objections. And nonetheless, he's died. So Philip's like attempt to try to be on the side of moral goodness as he understands that this one instance is just worded so deeply and so sharply. Yeah. And it's clear he's on edge. I mean, obviously the incident incidents with Paige and the money push him really hard, but he's on edge from that because he didn't expect the two deaths. There were two deaths that weren't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. Three, right? He kills two people on the base. He killed two people. He know he kills he at kills least two one. people on the basis. Okay. Yeah, he kills two people on the base. He kills the one guy with by like slitting his throat, and yeah. the other guy with his gun. Yeah, 
and then literally gets like washed by Elizabeth or like the blood rubbed off of his face, of his clothing. Elizabeth takes his jacket that he was wearing. So like after the intimacy and brutality of that, like slitting this person's throat as he has one hand over his mouth and like is holding him as close as he can. And then to have like Elizabeth, like put her hands on his face to wipe the blood away so they can get out of the base, which is just a really, really intense like moment amid a like intense sequence that's happening. And then they find that the Lewis, the yeah. driver is dead. So Danielle, amid everything else that's happening in this episode, we get the first introduction of the character of Lisa, who we first see Elizabeth is in disguise in the audience at an AA meeting. We see Lisa sharing at the AA meeting. Um, and then they go out for coffee together with one another. What are you thinking about Lisa here at her first introduction, Danielle? So at her first introduction, it, it struck me sort of similar to the way that I was struck by Fred the first time we met him, that like this wasn't going to be the last time we saw this person, that there was there was like a weightiness to the kind of sharing that Elizabeth was doing, even though she's like not sharing real things. Like there's a weightiness to the sharing that Elizabeth is doing. And there's something like it's clearly she's like got this important link to the the bigger mission that like gets revealed a little bit more in their conversation. It just struck me like that she was going to be around for a bit. Lots of no comments. <laughs> no comment. No comment. And also I think Lily, this points to what you were saying about the deceptions earlier on. And there's a way also in which Lisa has a tie to Sandy, right? So where Sandy is pursuing self-help via S right? We have Lisa kind of uh, demonstrating the show's understanding of how AA functioned in the 80s, at least. So there's kind of that connection. And then there's the, like, if Philip's kind of emotional cruelty or taking advantage of somebody emotionally is happening for Martha, right? For Elizabeth is she is going to one presumes, right? Use the fact that Lisa is in recovery and works at Northrop Grumman and that's her manipulation, her way into this particular mission or this particular recruitment. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we learn about, we learn about Lisa very quickly, um, yes. you know, because she, she is the person who's talking at the AA meeting and then she immediately like tells her entire story to Elizabeth, you know, who seems to be pretty good at getting people to talk to her, um, yeah. as a good spy should. Um, <laughs> and, and so we have, I, I mean, I think you're right. It's just like, if, if she were a throwaway character, we probably wouldn't know that much about her. The connection to Northrop Grumman and then all of the different storylines like coming together yes. in that moment, like that, I think that's something that a lot of these episodes do where we get like one moment in the episode where you start to see all the pieces come together. And just to, just to like pick up really briefly on the point that you made a moment ago, I think this is just another example of that, like, you know, the like shame, silence, control, or like the, like manipulating a weakness, right? Like we're seeing the thing that like Stan explained happen on the screen, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Great point. So we go from coffee between Elizabeth and Lisa to one of, so Lily, one of Danielle and I's favorite secondary characters, our favorite secondary favorite, character, let's be favorite, honest, absolutely. is Arcadi. Like, this yeah. is an Arcadi fan podcast, among we other things. 
And so I love this scene between Arcade and Gad that we get where Gad just like strolls into the diner and cuts through a lot of the fake formalities or kind of legal or professional norms that exist. And like the directness of the, ex- of the conversational exchange, but then the exchange of all you're going to do this. And in response, I will do this for you. And we're both going to come out ahead, even though it's this odd form of cooperation is just a really cool thing that this episode is doing. I don't have more of a thematic point because I just love Arcadi. Um, but I'm, I would welcome either of you to make a smarter version of what I just said. Just to add on to that, you know, like this is an Arcadi stand podcast is absolutely correct. Um, the only thing that I was thinking about in this scene is that it is such a reversal of the way that Oleg stalks Stan and like, traps him in a net here we get it, the sort of like us uh ussr relationship gets flipped right so it's gad seeking out only uh gad seeking out arcadi and it's like it's not trapping him it's just john like you said just like blowing past any sort of conventions and just going and like laying it all out on the table which i think gets us back to the point about like the role of deception. And this is a moment in the episode where like deception is just like, it's gone. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think about this particular, uh, this particular sequence and, and Gad's um, portrayal in general is Gad is made out to be, first of all, a a boy scout. Um, And, and he's also really this kind of American who just says it like it is. Mm-hmm. Does it like it is? Yeah. It's, you know, again, it's kind of the Reagan prototype is just like, I'm going to tell you how it is. And this is how I understand it. And that's how the world works. Um, you know, that's what he says essentially about packing up his office. And, yeah. and so what I think is happening here is, is really it's Gad being Gad, but it's also Gad being this kind of very American of the eighties kind of uh, demonstration uh, and, and Arcady is kind of like, okay. I mean, an interesting <laughs> approach, um, yeah. sort of not subtle, yeah. uh, also like the Americans. Um, and, and also, uh, sure. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard so much about you, Mr. Gad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like a, well, hello, right? Like, <laughs> There's a real casualness to Arcadi that I really appreciate. Yeah, and the, yeah. the actor's last name, it's Lev Gorn, G-O-R-N. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. my, my cousin has sworn to me that he's a relative with or without the E. So, um, who knows? <laughs> well, if you can get Lev Gorn onto this podcast, Lily, you're already one of our favorite guests, and like no one else could ever lay claim to that title. <laughs> if you can get us Lev Gorn, well, which I, is, I, I think, our, our dream. I, right, I don't Daniel? think that yeah. I can, but you know, <laughs> I might be related to him. <laughs> I feel like between Lily and Keller, yeah. we could like mount mount a campaign to get Lev Gorn on this podcast. Yeah. The problem is that Lev Gorn doesn't have a Twitter, so we can't like launch a like Twitter campaign to get him on there. He's as we as a clear way of research. There's a Lev Gorn photography, like he's also a photographer Twitter that hasn't been active in like eleven years. So that's probably oh. not a way into it. 
That's too bad. bad. All right. Uh, one more tiny note from me and Gloss. Um, we get both of these visits by Philip um, to the boardwalk, and I'm just getting extremely, extremely strong Sopranos vibes from these scenes and the way that the Sopranos used the Jersey Shore, Atlantic City, or whatever as crucial settings for both things that are happening plot-wise, but especially things that are happening in Tony's dreamscapes. Um, so I'm just getting very strong Sopranos vibes from a couple moments here in The Americans, and that's not a vibe that I often get from The Americans, so I wanted to call it out. Never seen it, but this felt like Long Beach Boardwalk, not Jersey City Boardwalk. No, I know, I know, I know. I'm, oh, saying, no, no, I'm, no. I'm I, talking about Sopranos, yeah, yeah. I was just, you know, you're usually the one who, like, can spot the location. Yeah. And I was feeling excited that I could probably spot the boardwalk location. <laughs> Seems legit. I mean, I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, John, in terms of the sort of the way that the boardwalk is presented in the, the two sort of episodes, particularly in the, in the conversation between Fred and, um, and Philip, um, yeah. very much, sort of going back to conversations that we saw people having in the Sopranos on the boardwalk. Yeah. Or even that Philip is like lost in reverie slash sadness in his depths. And there's a certain kind of the way that Tony is represents dreaming himself functioning on the boardwalk. Yeah. Um, that was, that was kind of good to me. All right, let's go to, let's go to Barb nostalgia for the unremembered eighties. We should address the fact that Oliver North like the Oliver North gets a writing credit on this episode. This is wild to me. Like I, I was just totally shocked to see this. I assumed that there was another, there's like a TV writer, a screenwriter who unfortunately had the name Oliver North, but multiple websites have informed us that it is indeed Oliver fucking North of Iran Contra Fair Frame, who to his discredit is indeed an expert on the shadiness uh, of the U.S. covert war against the Sandinistas, and thus kind of makes sense that he's part of this team on this episode, even if I feel really gross about it. I, I understand that there were quite a few people who consulted with the Joes on the show, yeah. um, and and one of the Joes obviously was also in the service, mm -hmm. um, and so probably has a number of connections, and I know they had also um, former Soviet agents who also yeah. consulted. Um, so it's not that far afield. Um, and of all the episodes, this seems to be the one that it would make most sense to get Oliver North to help write. Yeah. Like the <laughs> one of the, if not the single key figure in selling arms to Iran covertly oh to immediately God. fund the Contras yes. to carry out war crimes in Nicaragua. Like Absolutely. when the U.S. wasn't full up doing its own mining of the harbor, which was war sure. I mean, One of the few times the U.S. has been prosecuted internationally. So Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think that the name of the, sh uh, the episode itself makes sense mm -hmm. that if you're going to get Oliver North to help you write an episode, then Marshall Eagle's the one. Yeah. Listen, Oliver North helped write this episode. George R. R. Martin helped write episodes of Game of Thrones. It's like the same thing, right? Like it's like getting the original author of the text to like write the TV version of it. Pretty much, <laughs> we do. Pretty much. That's that's high quality comedy right there. I love it. <laughs> 
Um, okay, what else do we have in bar nostalgia? I just want to call attention to like the diner that uh, Gad meets Arcadian. It's just like the the booths and the darkness. It's like there's something very 80s about the about that diner. And also something very New Jersey. Like I have been and made several visits to like New Jersey diners, which seem to some extent perpetually stuck in the eighties. And I say that ninety percent as a compliment. Um, and and my my call out, of course, is to Doctor Ruth, who yes. we hear in the background as um, Stan's wife is packing. Um, to go have an affair, and Dr. Ruth is is very explicitly explaining about how to have sex, um, <laughs> and it's Dr. Like, Ruth, and it's having sex, and she's got the you know Farrah Fawcett flipped hair, um, yeah. and it's sort of again dark in the in the very eighties bedroom, and yeah. and so I think it's all all in that very short scene, pretty pretty amazingly eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Very 80s. The decor in Stan and Sandy's bedroom is particularly giving 80s vibes, oh, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. Among the many interiors of the Americans. Yes. Yes. All right. I would also like to point out that the outfits that our DOD friends show up with <laughs> is like very like mm, security slash scientist bro business casual, not necessarily eighties, but like we've got some severe, mostly not great sweaters over tops of two big button downs with overly large collars that are undone. And that's not necessarily eighties. I just wanted to point out that like, I think that that was an on point costuming decision. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's clothes are always really on point eighties. Um, and, and sort of, and, and incredibly fashionable in lots of ways too. Um, and, and so I, I think you're right about our, our, um, scientist bros in there. Yeah, um, there absolutely. Also, yes. And then we do like to check in on music that's happening in the Americans and the song that is playing in the background of Elizabeth and Lisa's conversation at the coffee shop after the AA meeting is up to you by Bonnie Ferguson, which was a good song. I didn't know it before, uh, before seeing in the Americans. So I enjoyed it. All right, Lily, you mentioned Shaw already, but uh, would you like to expound any more upon Dr. Ruth and how Dr. Ruth figures into your understanding of what the Americans is doing vis-a-vis the eighties or vis-a-vis gender in the eighties in minor character of the week? Well, I mean, part of it is also in connection to Est, which is, yeah. you know, also getting into like how people think about their sexuality and um, ideas about, you know, what they want um, in terms of pleasure, in terms of mates. Um, and, you know, we're not, we're not quite at the, the point where people are necessarily in Est experimenting with um, non-heterosexual relationships. Yeah. But there is a lot of discussion that we see from S that's going on about, you know, what what you should want from a sexual partner. Um, and what Dr. Ruth is explaining is basically like this is how you should mount somebody, and this is <laughs> and this is what you should be feeling. Um, and it does, you know, it does sort of get at some of the discussion with regard to like what women having sex um, should desire and want um, and, and not just focusing on, you know, 
perennially what men want from women in sex. It feels important that it's Sandy who's playing it, right? Because, like, that's exactly what she's missing. Even before, like, she says anything in that scene, I'm like, yeah, this feels like a thing Sandy would be playing because, like, when was the last time her and her husband had sex? Like, Dr. Ruth to the rescue. Or is Stan good at sex? Or is, like, Stan giving oral like Clark is Martha oral? No, probably not, one has to assume. Um, Yeah, Dr. Ruth much better on the activity-passivity distinction than uh, Aristotle. That's for the the real ones, um, that reference there. But I think that also takes us to the cave. And as is the tradition, we would like to offer our guests, Lily Gorin, the chance to take us, lead us down into the descent into the cave. And Lily, who are you you taking with us today? I'm taking Nietzsche. Taking yes. Nietzsche with us. Yes, we love it. Um, and and it really, I mean, it really goes to to uh, to Philip's sort of crisis. Um, and and Philip is struggling. I think he's been struggling for a while, but I think this episode really highlights the struggle with regard to what does life mean. And if there's if there's nothing there, if he's staring into the abyss, then can he make sense out of killing all these people? <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Are the people he's killing staring back, one might ask. There's also that. <laughs> like but but like to that question, like, is he thinking about the people staring back, right? Is that part of the like loss of 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 direction that Philip's experiencing? And what's making him think about these people as opposed to other people that he has willingly killed before? And and again, you know, Philip is in this interesting interaction with the church and the teachings yes. of Jesus, um, and and or at least Pastor Tim's interpretations of the teachings of Jesus, and trying to provide um, Philip with some form of grace. And which Philip is just rejecting because that's not, that's not solving the problem. Again, sort of Nietzschean. Um, that's, that's certainly not going to take him anywhere. Uh, and he, he's, he, every place he turns, he doesn't find something on which to put his feet. Um, I think. Uh, and, yeah. and his wife is not really it at the moment. And he is protective of his family, but he's incredibly dismissive of Henry in this episode. Um, And Henry's usually kind of been a little bit of his support. Um, And, you know, and he has at it with, with Paige. So I think your point about Henry being his support, there's something grounding about Philip and Henry's relationship, which is, which is not possible to be grounding like, anymore or at least in this moment i think also like even though there have been conflicts with Paige before like i think that relationship is also sometimes grounding for him like it keeps him in this moment and i think like i know that i said this earlier but the fact that philip says to elizabeth like it's easier for you right like i think that that is the line read that just makes your point, Lily, his wife is not the thing to put his feet on because like she's the path for her is clear and the path for Philip is not clear. 
And to the Nietzsche of it all, it's like in that moment, Philip is accusing Elizabeth of being a better Nietzschean or bastardized version of being Nietzschean in that particular yeah. moment. And then, I mean, Bully, to your point, I thought it was excellent kind of the way that you identify how Philip is rejecting the kinds of moralities that Nietzsche himself rejects. And of course, though, the problem for Philip is that he is much like he is more attracted to capitalism. He's also somewhat attracted to these more conventional moralities because he does feel remorse. He does feel guilt. He does have yeah. a guilty or bad conscience. He does have all of these things in response to the killing that he does to the fact that Lewis died of exposure in the cold and all of the murders that he's had to commit and all of the times for this work. And so he's like not able to be, Nietzsche of the genealogy enough, right, for providing some sort of like salve or getting over it um, to like go, you know, master morality all over the place. And he can't, and he can't do it, right? He can't go beat up Pastor Tim, right? Embodiment of the morality that Nietzsche rails against. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't have a solution. And I think, yeah. I think the meditation actually over six, six seasons is Philip's sort of working through. And mm-hmm. often despairing, um, yes. because he's in this quandary also. Like he has this job that also demands a commitment to this, a, a state, um, that he's also suspect of. So all of it is yeah. about him sort of coming apart in a lot of different ways and the places where he can be possibly pasted together, um, are actually based on love, right? That, that it's, you know, he does have love for Elizabeth. He does have love for Paige and Henry. Um, And, and one of the points that I would make that as it sort of evolves as well, he has this love friendship with Stan, obviously not a romantic one, but it's, it's a very interesting friendship that um, I think provides him with, you know, again, another place where there is love, um, not Christian love, um, <laughs> importantly, <laughs> importantly, uh, and I think that that he doesn't have a lot else that he can that he can hold on to. Now, Lily, to your point, though, we have infamously discussed whether there's some like homoerotic energy between Stan and <laughs> Philip with regards to a the racquetball and b to the scene in season one when Stan shows up at Philip's like cheap motel room and Philip is j- <laughs> just a towel and stays yeah. <laughs> in just a towel for a couple of minutes. So there are many possibilities that we have uh, in the direction that you are suggesting. We are pro Philip Stan bromance. We are also pro Philip Stan proto romance. <laughs> okay. So. I mean, it's also, it's also the eighties. And so, you know, Both of them are sort of in a place if they were inclined in that direction where they're not going to act on it in any way. Yeah. Well, right. That that is also a storyline of this season that they are exploiting Larrick because of his homosexuality, right? Like that, that's the, like to come back to the, the, one of the themes of this episode, the weakness that's being exploited is perhaps precisely the thing that is bubbling, though not at least to this point, not actualized between Philip and Stan. 
But here's hoping. Here's hoping they transcend <laughs> the 80s of it all. Are we, are we putting that in the Daniel Dossier officially? No, that's not that's not a theory. That's a wish. Okay. All right. <laughs> so now Danielle is officially on board with shipping uh, yeah. Stan and Philip. It's good to Honestly, know. Honestly, it's my favorite relationship in the show. <laughs> one that hey, we have not gotten a lot of in season no. two compared to season one. Season one, way heavier on the relationship between the two of them. So much so that I think it's in the previous episode, they pass each other. Yeah, it's because yeah. has gotten a new car. The new car. And they pass each other and Stan's like, well, we should go get a beer sometime. And Philip is like, yeah, give me a call. We'll set it up. Like the show's calling attention to the fact that they haven't hung out the way that they were hanging out all throughout the first season. Exactly. Well, Lily, we usually um, decide whether or not and we've got a little, I think maybe a little bit more of uh, maybe a, some bonus cave too. We always decide whether or not the thinkers that we meet in the cave are thinkers that we're going to leave down there. Are they chained to the wall? Like, are they maybe holding the puppets? Are they stoking the fire? Or do they get to come back out with us? So in terms of Nietzsche, like, where are you leaving him in the cave? Hmm. This is an interesting question. I think Philip is so unresolved that I'm not exactly sure. Um, and, and I think this is, you know, having watched that, that final sequence again with Pastor Tim, what Philip says doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's there for a reason. Philip doesn't know what the reason is that he's there. Pastor Tim is asking him. He can't give him a good answer. And then he leaves um, as after getting in his face. Um, and so I, you know, I think that what you see is Philip in this, in this particular, um, this particular episode, really unresolved. He has to do his job. He's got to work with Fred. He's, you know, yeah. he has to he has to kill the guys on the base because otherwise they're going to get exposed. He's so mad at Paige and the church. But what's he going to do about it? To me, that sounds like we leave Nisha in the cave because we're going to need him again. Like, like. He and like he's Nietzsche, so like we're chaining him up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, he's gonna like cause mischief and Ubermensch yeah. about down there. It, exactly, but I think like you're you're the point that I'm taking from you, Lily, is like we're gonna. This is a resource we're going to need to go back to, and and perhaps will be helpful later. So like, let's chain this dude up. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle loves answer. Danielle loves chaining theorists up to in the cave. It's one of her favorite things about this podcast. It's honestly, which I say not, I say to honor, not to like shame. Uh, well, I, I think I, I think Nietzsche will will be needed again. So, <laughs> ooh, I think we have a thirty second bonus cave this week, which is also to shout out uh, the wages for housework movement. So here we're thinking about <laughs> Cox, we're thinking about Federici, we're thinking about uh, Maria Della Costa, um, and the way that Elizabeth schools page on how much domestic labor and reproductive labor and socially reproductive labor is necessary uh, to be an adult in a society. And I'm, I don't think it's impossible that Elizabeth, you know, this is the early eighties, right? So like, maybe she read some wages for housework at some point, like somehow she came across it, like some debates among socialist feminists. I don't know, but I just want to point out that like, 
Elizabeth is waking up Paige to do all these chores and say that adults don't get to have any like freedom or in their own lives because they're always doing stuff they have to do, including in this particular instance, gender domestic labor. So, yeah. And I also think like it is a count the Philip mm, Elizabeth says to Paige, like you want to be an adult, you want to decide how you spend your money. Like, it is a direct response to the the money of yeah, it all, great point. which feels like important. I also think we saw Elizabeth in an earlier episode in Italy. So like in my brain, she's like picking up some of those pamphlets while she's like hanging around, uh, hanging around in Italy. Great. I, I like it. I think that's, an, that, that's another part of our like wish casting headcanon of the Americans <laughs> to, uh, for like and interactions with the, Operismo and post-operismo movements in Italy, <laughs> and particularly the feminist appropriations of. All right. I think we did it. I think we did it. Lily, thank you so much for being here. It is it is wonderful to have you on these episodes. It's my it pleasure. Amazing to talk to you about the Americans. We want to have you back when I have watched more of this so that you can uh, you know, give give away more stuff. Well, I already <laughs> asked for stingers, so Great. Done. Put it on the schedule. Book. Great. Our people. No talk idea. to your people. <laughs> it's an excellent it's a good episode. It's another, it's another excellent yeah, episode. I, like, I wouldn't be surprised. Lily, you're just a you exquisite taste um, <laughs> in Americans' episodes. Oh my God. I love it so and I, much. And I have been listening to Yaz for years now ah. because of the Americans. Danielle, you haven't gotten there yet, but you will. So I really, I had never listened to Yaz oh. and then started to as a result of the first time I watched the Americans. So I feel that very deeply. Yeah, I, I did listen to Yaz in the eighties. Does Danielle know who Yaz is? Could you guess what genre <laughs> Yaz is? Is it like, they were also sometimes known as Yazoo. Correct. I was going to say Klezmer. No. <laughs> that that's like- that's Danielle-specific headcanon. Like, that's- <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I, I was like, are you just saying jazz in a no. weird, like, with weird Y-A-Z. That was like Y-A-Z. where my other brain went. I know. I, I had the album that they talk about. Um, and you can you can go on Spotify and listen to write Y-A-Z and listen to some of the music. Um, Danielle, you'll, if you listen to like any Yaz song, like you'll understand why I'm into it, I suspect would be my okay. guess. So again, Lily, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks as always to producer Amy. As always, um, up next in your feed on Tuesday, you'll get the next episode of Moon Knight. That's episode four, The Tomb. And then next Thursday, we'll, we'll be back with you with American season two, episode 10, Yousef. Um, and thanks so much to Lily yet again. And thank you all for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. 
Until next time, go play some racquetball. For the viewers at home, Danielle is now yelling at her dog on mute. <laughs> yeah, Danielle's uh, and doing some dog sitting. Danielle, doggy daycare uh, here in this episode. So if you hear the occasional dog, that's uh, either Fitz or I can't believe I'm blinking on the other Winston. dog's name. Winston. Winston. <laughs> <laughs> All right, some of this is going into episodes.